Let's take a look at your, uh, as we start this morning. By the way, just thank you again for being here and for getting up early and for making sacrifices. And uh, we try to reward you with good food in the morning. All right, take a look at um, your build quote for the day. This is just to help us fix our hearts in the right direction. And um, it's based off of Luke 24, verse 26. It's uh, a quote from David Klopfelter in his book, and I'll uh, give a plug for his book here in just a minute. But Luke 24, 26 says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Was it not a must that the Christ would suffer? And this is Jesus' appeal to his disciples after he had been raised from the dead. And it's his appeal that, guys, this was in the Old Testament. You missed this. Um, it was there with enough clarity that because you missed it, I'll give you a rebuke. Oh, foolish ones and slow apart to believe. That's what he said in verse 25. Was it not necessary? This is a must. And then this is what Klotfelter says and J.I. Packer as well. It seems, in other words, that the problem created by our sin is one that can be solved in no other way than through the obedience and the sacrificial death of the perfect Son of God. The primary meaning of the atonement is that in Christ, God has acted to satisfy the requirements of his own nature so that he may justly give to us the salvation he desires for us to enjoy. Um, the atonement is the bearing away of our sin and guilt and the wrath of God in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. You have other key words hooked with that, like expiation. That's the taking away of sin and guilt. You have propitiation. That's the satisfaction of God's wrath. Um, you've got those kinds of words woven into it. But it's grab all that together and hold on to it. And the primary meaning is that Christ, in Christ, God has acted to satisfy his own requirement um, in justice so that he might, as Savior, give to us his salvation that we must have. Jay Packer in Concise Theology has a similar statement. He says, Christ's death was God's act of reconciling us to himself, overcoming his own hostility to us that our sins provoked. That's an amazing statement. Um, does God love sinners or is he hostile towards sinners? And for the ones that he is saving, the answer is yes. He has hostility, but his hostility as a holy God and a just God meet his love at the cross. And they coexist somehow. He satisfies his justice and his love covers his hostility and we are saved by God's grace. It's amazing. And this is the gospel, is it not? And this is what we want to bring our hearts to every, every day, every hour, and have this wash over our cold hearts and um, have them be renewed over and over again. So with that in mind, let's pray, and then I'll give a shameless plug for Klotfelter's book. Here, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for 
your son. Thank you for the atonement. Thank you for bearing away in his body all of my sin. All of it. Sin I haven't even committed yet, but surely will. Thank you for um, satisfying your own justice in your son's death on the cross. Thank you for um, overcoming your hostility towards me, a rebel. And thank you for saving me. Thank you for being so gracious and merciful to all of us. Lord, we humble ourselves before you at the start of this new day. We um, want to come before your presence. We want to come before your word and have you speak to us. We want our fellowship to put an accent on the gospel. We want to learn how to minister to people better with the gospel. And I thank you for 1 Thessalonians 1. So I just pray that you would meet with us and help us, guide us, and um, glorify your son in our midst. And uh, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Clot Filter's book is a relatively new book. It's called Sinners in the Hands of a Good God, Reconciling Divine Judgment and Mercy. Uh, it is probably, in my opinion, and I haven't read all of them, but I've read quite a few, but out of books that try to highlight the sovereignty of God and salvation or, uh, or the doctrines of grace or whatever, this is the best book that you can read. Claude Felter is a pastor in Northridge, California. Um, he has gone on quite a theological journey himself from being a man who had a hard time reconciling God's justice and his love for sinners. And um, he has come to just a really great place of understanding on the doctrines of grace. And he has a pastoral heart in it. He's not out to, to bash anybody. He's not out to make a... He doesn't carry a big hammer. Um, but he is precise. And he's pastoral. And because he was there. He knows what it's like to wrestle with you know, who's sovereign in salvation. What role does the sinner have in faith and all of that? And it, this is an excellent book. Yes, sir. Does his understanding of this matter now kind of make him isolated from his perhaps upbringing and yeah. theological training? Absolutely. <coughs> yeah, he, yeah, he... Those he, are the ones that are most interesting to me. Yeah. Kind of you, will, you will not regret this reading this book. David Wells gives a plug for it in the back. Ian Murray does, and he he really just, he, he goes about defending the doctrines of grace and proving them in a very different way than most books do. So I highly encourage you to read it. This has been on our bookshelf. We've had it be the book of the month. We highlighted this when we did our series on the doctrines of grace. I would put this at the top before you read anything else. And I know you might in your mind say, yeah, but there's some other really good books on this, I would say, yeah, put those aside and read this one. And then go back and read the other ones, too. It is an excellent book. So, anywho. All right. You and I must be men that shepherd our hearts. And primarily, we, well, in a broad sense, we want to shepherd our hearts um, to the Word of God, the Bible, from Genesis 1 to the last chapter of Revelation. But in particular, throughout all of those pages, what we really want to do is we want to shepherd our heart towards what some theologians call um, that scarlet line of redemption. In other words, 
tracing through the Bible God's heart for the, the, the substitutionary sacrifice of an innocent in the place of the guilty. You see it everywhere in the Old Testament. And you see it especially in the Mosaic Law and the regulations for worship there. And all of that is screaming out and pointing to the coming of the innocent one above all innocent ones, the one with the better blood, Christ. And so we, we want to shepherd our hearts, yes, to everything in the Word of God, but in particular we really want to focus in on the, the main backbone and storyline of the Scriptures, what God is doing to save sinners in His Son. So you want your heart to be full of the Gospel, full of everything that we just read in that, that quote. And then you want to step into your household, whether you're married or not, roommates, kids, um, wife, whatever. You want to start working now on that gospel that is simmering in your heart and it's bubbling up and it's boiling over in your heart. You want that to splash over into those lives of those people that you live with. Um, you want an aroma to be in your house of what's been simmering in your heart and it's the gospel. Um, be that kind of a man and when you step into the lives of others in the church and outside the church uh, God will use you in mighty ways play leapfrog over your heart play leapfrog over the gospel play leapfrog over your family to just get excited about being in Bible study with guys or reaching out or doing evangelism or whatever and yeah you probably see some neat things happen. It'll be some enjoyable because God is gracious and he works through stubborn guys like you and me all the time. <coughs> However, there will be a, a, a significant lack of integrity in you and in your ministry that you have. And so what we're trying to do and build is make sure that we don't play leapfrog over anything. We just start at the very beginning. And this is, I'm going to sing this song to you every Saturday. We're together. And you must sing this song to yourself every day. You never graduate from this kind of a message. You must always be this way and think on these things. And so we're just trying to emphasize that. And this morning I, I diverted away from what our schedule said. We were going to be in the heart again, but I really felt like I wanted to take two Saturdays in a row, this one and the next, to talk about the ministry. And so this morning we're going to do First Thessalonians 1. If you're at the men's retreat, you heard this. Um, we'll probably add some things to it that we didn't get there. But I, I really want this to be, um, I want to do chapter 1, and very close after that I want to do chapter 2, because chapter 2 of that First Thessalonians, at least the first part of it, is, is stunning when you look at them together, and you look at what Paul's overall emphasis is on ministering. So let's open up to First Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to focus in specifically on verses 5 to 10. So let's just read First Thessalonians chapter 1 all of it, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And you got to love the way letters were written in the first century world. Just backwards to ours. Put our name at the end and you put the person you're writing to at the top. Well, they know who you're, they are. But they don't. you always have to look at the end of the letter first to find out who's writing this. <clears throat> so you put your name at the top if you're Paul. And it's to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Very common greeting uh, of the Apostle Paul. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's 
uh, one of Paul's favorite triads there, faith, love, and hope. Faith, hope, and love. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And what we want to focus on is how Paul knows that God has chosen them. And that's verses 5 through 10. It's, it's because of the ministry of the gospel in them that Paul knows that God chose them. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's talk about <clears throat> what Discipline 3 is all about. I would say, for, for me, this is the, the key passage to understand in regards to, uh, <clears throat> if you want to understand what gospel ministry should look like. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have uh, five statements to make. And they're primarily just observations from the passage. This is not a, a sermon. This is just observations from the passage. Number one, you have it there. Ministry has only one message, and it is the gospel. He says in verse 5, our gospel came to you. Just stop right there and think on that. The, the subtle danger for any church and for any man, for any ministry, for any small group, for any leadership development ministry, for anything that you'd be a part of, the subtle danger for any of them is to just take a degree step off of the main <coughs> message, which is the gospel. That is a subtle danger. Because after a while, you can watch yourself. You can always check yourself by saying this. The minute you would say, our church came to you, or our small group came to you, our worship service came to you, our leadership development ministry came to you, the minute you substitute anything else in there in the place of the gospel, Paul said, no, our gospel came to you. That was his burden. That was his concern. But it's so easy because in your small group, you can start off good and really be focused on the gospel, but then you can become just slightly distracted by what's really fun and enjoyable and great that's happening there, and you can start talking about your small group more than you end up talking about the gospel. You can start talking about your church more than you talk about the gospel. You can talk about what's going on in leadership development more than you talk about the gospel. And that is a subtle thing because all of those things have value in ministry only insofar as they what? When is your small group at its best? When it what? When it preaches the gospel. When it is in the servant role and the gospel is in the Lord role, so to speak. Right? But the minute that gets fuzzy and you start shifting balances and heights and priorities in that, it, it's subtle and it's dangerous. Uh, Paul's main concern 
as he thinks back on his ministry that he had with the Thessalonians, and it was a short period of time, as he thinks about his relationship with them, as he thinks about his time with the Thessalonians, the thing that was on his mind was the gospel engaged you. Our gospel came to you. Now, the thing that has to be at the core and the center of your life, guys, as you think about your own heart, is the gospel must come into contact with me. Okay? It has to come into contact with me. I have to be wise enough, I have to be disciplined enough that I'm not going to let a day go by without me preaching the gospel to me. The gospel has to come into contact with my heart. And again, we can talk about um, how you never graduate from the gospel, right? We don't. You never... The gospel, the minute you turn the gospel into um, something like your diploma, when was the last time you thought of your diploma? Was it necessary for what you're doing now? Yeah. I mean, it was a, you can see how yeah, it was an important part of the process. You may not be doing exactly what your diploma was in the field for, but it was necessary. I mean, you can see how that, you know, it was useful. It helped me, you know, be disciplined and finish something that I started and blah, 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 all of that. But listen, the gospel is nothing like that. But we can turn the gospel into something like that. Yeah, it was necessary for something, you know, back there. It's a shadow of my, in my memory. And, um, but I don't really see its relevance for what I'm doing today because the salvation only, you know, or the gospel is primarily about saving sinners. Converting them, and that's true, right? And do we ever want to not say that? No, we always want to say that. But the gospel is much more than that. The gospel is not just what saves. The gospel sanctifies. It has power for salvation. It has power for sanctification as we continue to wash the cross over us and over us again. Again, I would remind you of um, Paul's language in Romans. What does he say in chapter 1? Read the first part of chapter 1 before he even gets to um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Before he says, guys, I've never been to you in Rome yet, but I can't wait to see you. I am eager to come so that I might preach the gospel. And if you have this really small view of the gospel, you can be thinking, well, does Paul think that these people aren't saved? Because he's going to come and preach the gospel to them. And Because you only preach the gospel to people who aren't saved, right? That's a very small view of the gospel. It's not a view of the gospel that Paul has. Paul just saying, no, Christians, when I get there, there's one I can't wait to preach the gospel. You look at the last chapter of Romans, in chapter 16, verse 25, and he closes out the whole letter with his benediction, his, his prayer, and he says, now to my gospel that can establish you. Wow. You want to be an established man for God? The gospel is what does that. And so the book ends on the book of Romans, is the gospel. So what is Paul doing from the rest of chapter 1 all the way through a good part of chapter 16? Something different than the gospel? No, he's developing a very rich theology of the gospel. A gospel theology. Theology that comes from it. And so Paul had in his mind no idea at all that you would ever graduate from the gospel. He never did. Um, and neither can we. 
And so you have to be concerned first that the gospel come into contact with your own heart. You have to be <coughs> concerned if the gospel comes into contact with your household. You have to be concerned that when you step into the lives of men and women around you, that the gospel is much more than a diploma. Don't ever let the gospel sound like it's a diploma to anybody else, okay? Especially to your own heart. Now notice what Paul says there in verse 5. He says, our gospel. Possessive pronoun. Our gospel. Now, what is Paul not saying here? Paul is not saying, look, this is my message that I created. I possess it. He's not saying that. We know where he got the message. We, he got it on the road to Damascus, and he got it out in Arabia when he went out there and hung out with God alone. Um, and he got it from the Old Testament, we know. As you trace through Acts, he says, I've taught nothing except what the scriptures said, that the Christ would come, that he would suffer, and that forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. Um, what, what is Paul saying here? Paul is demonstrating an ownership of the gospel. When was the last time you referred to the gospel as your gospel? Not in a funny way like, no, this is my message that originated with me, but no, I own this gospel <coughs> because it owns me. See, there needs to be this kind of a love and a connection to the gospel that it's, it's my gospel. This is my gospel. Paul wasn't hesitant to say that. He didn't wasn't concerned if that sounded funny. He just wanted to demonstrate possession of it and its possession of him. That's the aroma that comes off of him. And wouldn't you want that guy said of you? That there's that kind of possessiveness of the gospel. All right, so ministry has only one message. He's only concerned that the gospel comes. Let's talk about our second statement. And again, if you guys have any questions or comments along the way, I'd love for you to throw those out, okay? And um, we'll take them as they come. Number two, ministry requires an uncommon messenger. When you get past this first little phrase, because our gospel came to you, Paul immediately spends the rest of his time in chapter one and into chapter two, and even beyond that, um, he spends a lot of time talking about the messengers that came with the gospel. And it, his, his point is to put an emphasis on how uncommon they were, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy and, and others. His point is to put an emphasis on that. He's, his emphasis throughout is not on the content of the gospel. He doesn't now say, and now let me tell you what the gospel is. He says, let me tell you about the gospel carriers. Let me tell you about the messengers that came. He says in verse 5, it came to you not only in word. Paul's not diminishing the fact that it, its content came. It did. But he's saying, that's not my emphasis. It came to you, but not in word only. That's not what I'm going to be after. But it came to you in power and in the Holy Spirit and full conviction. You know, key phrase, key statement, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, what does this phrase mean in the middle of verse 5? It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and a full conviction. You guys, anybody remember this from the retreat? There's two options that you have for what Paul's referring to there. Does anybody want to take a stab at explaining it? What does he mean by that phrase? In power, in the Holy Spirit, in full conviction? That's okay if you don't remember. I was just curious. I thought if you did, I'd rather have you say it than me. Okay? That's all right. Um, one option is that Paul's talking about the message, the gospel. 
The gospel came in power. The gospel um, brought a, came in the Holy Spirit, and the gospel brought full conviction to you. And that would be, a, we'd jump at that right away and think, well, that's probably what it is. The interesting thing, though, is everything around it, that those statements, doesn't support that. If you look, he's talking about the gospel coming, but look at the phrase that follows. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Paul's emphasis is not on the qualities of the gospel. The emphasis is on the quality of men that they were. So the phrase, in power and in the Holy Spirit in full conviction, actually refers to Paul and the guys that came with him. We were men of gospel power. And we were men of the Holy Spirit. And we were men who had full conviction or full confidence. It's not that the gospel came about conviction of sin. It did. But that's not what Paul's emphasizing in verse 5. What he's emphasizing in verse 5 is that we were men among you who were marked out by the power of God. We were men among you who were marked out by the Holy Spirit. And we were men marked out among you as men who had full confidence in what we were doing. You know what kind of men we proved to be. That's his emphasis, is on the messenger, not so much on the message. Which is really interesting because Paul, almost in all of his other letters, where does he put the main heavy emphasis? The message. And Paul's not all of a sudden now saying that doesn't matter. He's just saying, no, that what I want to do, Paul's saying, I want to lift up really high how important the messenger is, the minister, the one serving the gospel. And so this is a great chapter for us to focus on in regards to becoming men who focus on the message as we share it out. Um, hey, Scott. Yes. Please. From verse 4 where it says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Mm -hmm. And so then 5 starts out with 4. Yes. The 4 is referring to how they know their election by God. Yeah, it's tied to verse... It's a, it's a explanatory of how Paul knows. So he's saying that this verse 5 is explaining how he knows that mm -hmm. they were elected because they... The gospel came to you and... As you see here, he's going to put a, a lot of his defense on just what happened between them as he was with them. The whole interaction is just clear proof and evidence in his mind that God did his electing work in them. So there's an explanation going on there. Is there something that's, that you're thinking of? or I guess what I'm trying to wrap my mind around is it, it seems like he... I don't want to jump to conclusions, but it seems like what he's saying is because of the... The, because of the power and the Holy Spirit that he was able to portray in his sharing the gospel with them, it was evidence to him that God had set them aside for election. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that's woven into it as well. Paul, um, the, 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 the weight of what is going on here, and you'll see it as we continue to work through, He's, he's putting a lot of time and energy in this passage on the kind of men that they were. You know what kind of men we proved to be. Verse 6, you became imitators of us. And then he turns to them, and you guys became an example. Um, we don't need to say anything anymore, verse 8. 
Um, verse 9, there's a report that's going on and around. What's the report about? It's a report concerning us and the kind of reception we had among you. He's, he's putting a lot of emphasis. And a significant part of that is that God was working in a powerful way in Paul and through Paul. The Holy Spirit was undeniably present in Paul and the men. And they were men, therefore, of absolute confidence in what the gospel message would do and produce in them. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I think part of it too has to do with um, part of it's talking about the people from Thessalonica, and then the other part is talking about Paul and his buddies. Right. Yeah, he's he's really going after almost the effects of the gospel on himself and those who came and then on the Thessalonians. Uh, that seems to be what he's highlighting. Yeah, so he, he starts with him and he quickly goes into, as you'll see here, and what you just brought, Jason, that, wow, the gospel had a powerful effect on you guys too. Uh, that's a good point. Um, and, and so we need to hold these two things together. Number one, there's only one message to bring. And that message requires a certain kind of messenger. Okay? You don't want to emphasize one without the other. Okay? And the easy thing to do is to put a lot of emphasis on the message, the content, the content. Let's get the and you got, guys, we gotta get the content right. The gospel, the gospel, the message. But then to sit back and not give any attention to what kind of men we are. You understand? Can't do that. And the gospel only makes you into a certain kind of man. So if the gospel makes you a certain kind of man, you're going to have the right content. But you can't, you never have one without the other. So don't be content to like, yeah, I like the message, I love to preach the message, but I'll be sloppy with the way I live. Can't do that. That's not what's being emphasized here. There's only one message to give, and there's only one kind of messenger that should be giving it. A gospel messenger. A gospelized messenger. Um, I think it is a, a great prayer to plead with God. God, please, you know, make me into a man who's who's marked by your power. And I don't want to talk about. I don't want you to think of going off on a on a charismatic bent or something. But God, I want to be the kind of man for your sake, for your glory, that your power just courses through. I would love to be that, God. I plead with you. Make me into a man marked by your power. Not for self-aggrandizement, but for the gospel, for the sake of what you want to do in this world. Make me into a man of power. God, mark me, fill me with your spirit. I want fullness of your spirit all of the time. When I read your Bible, God, more of your spirit to illuminate, to fill me up. When I'm sharing, it may be evident that the Holy Spirit is, is, is speaking through me. In small group, God, make your spirit be present in us and increase my conviction about what is in this Bible. That I have full confidence in what your message is. I would plead with God to um, make us in the men like that. Because the ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Not just anybody, 
or an uncommon messenger. Number three, you put those two things together, you put the message coming, and you unite with it an uncommon messenger, and number three, the ministry is going to result in imitation. The gospel will make people in, uh, imitatable and turn them into imitators. Verse six, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, what is Paul not saying when he says, of us and of the Lord? He's not saying, you imitated us and we were one way, and then you also imitated Jesus and he was another way. This is like Paul, what he said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Flip back there real quick. I want you to see it with your own eyes. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Paul told the Corinthians there, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Right? Paul is not trying to say my life is different from what Jesus' life was and what his message was. My life is actually in line with Jesus. So imitate me because I'm imitating Christ and what's going on. His life is aligned with Christ. His life is in the same trajectory of Christ. Paul was careful to shepherd his own heart to Christ, and the impact on his life was he became like Christ, and they are now imitating him. And the question that you need to ask yourself is, are you planning now, have you been planning, or will you start planning to become, that, that, that God would work in you in a way that, that you would actually want to be imitated. God, make me into an example for others. Again, you don't, you don't ask that for prideful or arrogant reasons, but you recognize that this is what God does. I mean, how many of you, you had somebody when you were younger in the faith, or you have somebody in your life now, and man, the, 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 the power of God on, in them, through them, on your life, the impact, you, you know you've become like them to a degree. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's Maybe it's just a, somebody who led you to Christ, but they left a lasting impact on you that you kind of carry around the aroma of what they were in your life. And you don't see that as divergent from Christ. You just see, no, that guy was imitating Christ and he brought the gospel to me and he really discipled me and I see that impact. Um, you must become that. Um, this is what marks a leader out from a guy who's just attending and sitting in his pew. Pray that God would align your life with Christ to such an extent that others will be safe in imitating your life. And you know, I was thinking about this this morning, earlier. Those of you guys, how many of you um, have had at one point or are now involved in Next Generation Ministries? You know, even for the little ones on up. You know what? Praise God for you guys. Because you get to once a week be um, or whenever it is you serve, that one time you serve in a rotation, you get to be in front of these little kids. And I know, having little kids who sit and listen to you, that they, they listen and they're watching. And they take it in. And they talk about you. And they talk about what you did in class. And um, you have a, a tremendous opportunity with little ones to do that. Um, it's a great way to be an example. And I want to encourage you guys who are older, in here, and by older I mean anybody over 28. Um, just kidding. You guys who are older, you you need to become an example for these younger guys here. 
who are in the first laps of their family that where you're on the, the, the latter end and laps of your life and family. Help them. And you know what? I know these guys well enough. Tom can speak to this as well. Um, these young guys, they want older guys to say, hey, do you want to talk about how it's going? Um, these young men here, they, they, they're very interested in having somebody over them. So God's design, think about this. God's design in what happened in Thessalonia, Thessalonica is that a tangible example would come to them. And it was Paul. He was a man overcome by the gospel. He owned the gospel. And it, that was a part of what God wanted to use to draw and shape the Thessalonians into the kinds of men and women they needed to be in Christ. Tangible examples. And this is still God's plan. At Grace Bible Church, he wants to set up tangible examples in front of anybody and everybody who comes. And guys, what we're pleading with you on is that you would become that. Pray that God would make you into a tangible example for somebody else to imitate. Um, now, th that's talking about imitation in general. But look how Paul narrows in specifically on how they became imitators of him. Verse 6. Here's how um, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction. We were, Jesus was persecuted. He was afflicted. Um, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm afflicted. And now you have received the gospel, and you are imitating us, and you are afflicted. So primarily what Paul is talking about here in terms of a life of imitation is um, you're getting beat up like I got beat up. So you've got a real general application of, yeah, you need to imitate those who are over you or examples to you. You need to become an example, but primarily an example in imitation uh, in affliction. And you think about it. This is what happens. The gospel penetrates a hostile world, a world full of rebels and enemies of God. And when they desert the enemy and come to Christ... That's a hostile environment. It's a dangerous place to live. It's a volatile place. I mean, you think about it. You are a part of the most significant and eternally impacting overthrow that could take place in a human heart. I mean, you are, you are stepping in with the gospel into people's lives, and you are stepping into their hearts, and you are overthrowing the tyranny of sin in the gospel. God is, but you're a servant in it. This is not like you're getting people to change their party affiliation. I mean, you're talking about someone who hates God, who shakes their fist in the face of God, who becomes one who humbles himself under the mighty hand of God and loves this God. That is a massive change in overthrow. That is the biggest coup you'll ever see. Um, and the Thessalonians very quickly began to imitate Paul in this that as he was afflicted, they are becoming <laughs> afflicted. And I love how verse um, 6 ends. You did it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Because you would think in affliction that affliction would become a massive joy killer. You would think that. I would think that. I think that. How on earth can you be afflicted and have joy? How can you be beaten? How can you do what Paul did in Philippi? They beat him with rods. They go into prison. They sing all night long. I mean, you, that is so un... Uh, this is not of this world. 
what it would be inside a man that would bring affliction and not rob him of joy? What would be inside Christ that he would consider the cross before him and endure it all with joy for the sake of what's on the other side? Well, I want you to turn with me back to John. John chapter 15. What kind of joy is this? John 15, verse 11. Jesus in the last night is with his disciples and he says to them, here's why I'm speaking to you at one point. He says, these things I have spoken to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Ah, so here's the key. There is a kind of joy that affliction cannot touch. Affliction will touch your joy. You get your version of joy, you pull together what makes you happy, what makes you full of rejoicing, you have your version of joy and affliction will touch it and pop it like a balloon. Jesus' joy that he puts in you is made of steel. Affliction can't pop it. You can't penetrate it. It can't make it evaporate. Jesus' prayer and desire as he teaches the disciples is that they would have his joy in them, verse 11. And therefore their joy would be made full. Go to chapter 16, verse 22. Mm, verse 20, actually. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. And he's referring to his death, right? There's going to be a, a, a period of grief and sadness. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now because they're starting to get it. Oh, you're going to go away. We're not going to see you. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Go to chapter 17 in his prayer. But now I am coming to you, Father, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I speak these things to them so that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Tribulation touches my joy all the time. My version of joy Trouble comes, persecution comes, discomfort comes, just general disagreeableness between brothers comes, and it touches my joy, and my joy is gone like that. And it's a rebuke to me that I am not more careful to cultivate the joy of Jesus in my heart that he has put. 
and I have to work on this all the time. Um, I, I think I'm a man who's marked more by my joy than I am by the joy of Christ. Um, but that joy cannot be touched by affliction. So, can I remind you of a couple other passages and then we'll take a little break, okay? How about go to Philippians 1, verse 27. Just so that we have a, a right understanding of this idea of affliction and suffering in life, in coming to Christ. Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay, so Paul's talking about what kind of people they should be, what the gospel makes them into. It's a very similar theme to 1 Thessalonians 1. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, same kind of theme that we're going to get to in 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul didn't have to be there to hear about the effects of the gospel on them. That you are, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and of one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That is a clear sign. When you guys live that way, a life worthy of the gospel, you're standing firm, you're striving side by side, and you're not frightened by your enemies, by your opponents, that is a clear sign to them of two things. Of your, their destruction and of your salvation. And all that's from God. For it has been granted to you that for your sake, Christ, sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This is what has been given to you. This is what is granted to you, Christian. That you are going to suffer along with Christ. There's going to be affliction part of coming to Christ. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21. For to, see, for to this you have been called. Same kind of language. This is what's been granted you. You've been called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And what follows that passage is what he did on the cross, his suffering on the cross. That's the example of suffering. This is what you've been called to. That's the example before you, is the afflictions of Christ, the suffering of Christ. Go to chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, joy, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let us who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Flip over to chapter 5. 
Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In Peter's letter, you know, he's writing to those who are suffering. And so he's saying, look, any anxiety that you do have, you want to know how to keep joy, cast your anxieties on, on God. He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, that can either be a comforting thing or a troubling statement. We are going to suffer for a little while. But if you're in it and it's heavy, you can say, it's just for a little while. So you figure out which it is for you. The God of all grace, after you have suffered a little while, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So guys, suffering is, is what we will be marked by sooner or later. Because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay? Let's go back to the verse that we were looking at, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's look at it again. You became imitators of us and of the Lord because you received the word in a very uncomfortable environment. And you did it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Ministry involves imitation, and it's a painful imitation. Okay? Any questions or comments on any of that so far? Thoughts? All right, let's take a five-minute break. We have two points to finish up. So turn to the back side of your page. We talked about that uh, ministry has only one message. It's the gospel. Never want to graduate from that message. But we want to be men who give attention to the kind of men that we must be. We need to prove ourselves to be a certain kind of men as we are among people ministering the gospel. Um, we pray that our time together this year will, you know, just ingrain that on our brains and um, start us on a journey of really being concerned about that. And that when you do that, it's inevitable that it's God's design that lives would be imitatable um, examples. Um, and Paul says, you became imitators really for a reason. Look at verse 7. Number verse 6, you became imitators of us because you received the word and all of this for a purpose so that you may become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in, in those two districts, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. And imagine this. Imagine the Apostle Paul saying... I don't need to say anything. The minute you can silence a preacher, that is, an, that is a miracle. <laughs> Ministry, number four, must produce, and I don't know how to say this. I, I, I looked at it this again this morning as I was, and I don't like this statement, but I'm trying to get after something, and if any of you guys have a better idea of what I'm trying to get after, I'll take what you want. Ministry, or what you come up with. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives, and 
there's two things going on here in verse 7. One is that your gospel ministry to others, it has to produce people who are examples themselves. What did he just talk about? Paul was saying, we were examples and you imitated us. But now he's going to the next step and he's saying, but now you, you became examples. And then in verse 8, he actually goes on beyond that to talk about what kind of example they were. They were effective. So let's start first with them just becoming examples. And I don't know how else to call this from verse um, 6 to like down through verse 8, but I call it this. There is an imitation chain reaction that takes place in gospel ministry. It's an imitation chain reaction. Think about it. Paul says, I imitate Christ. So Christ is at the top. And Paul is imitating Christ. And then he is saying, and you became imitators of us. And now what is he saying? You became examples to these two districts and everywhere. Okay, so now what does that mean? What, what should we be thinking about when we minister the gospel to people? Well, we got to start first in the fact that I need to be the kind of man who's imitating Christ, Right? And I'm going to turn to the people that I'm going to minister to, and I'm going to say, God, by, by your grace, somehow would you make me an example <coughs> to them? And that's just a big step to get over right there, isn't it, my guys? God, make me an example. I feel so unworthy of such a thing. But God, would you somehow, some way, for your glory and for the good of them who need the gospel, make me an example. But you don't stop there. God, take those ones who look at me and turn them into what? An example. Oh my goodness, do you see this? Just I mean, It's like an avalanche of imitation that's going on. And that's what you guys need to be thinking of. I mean, start with the beginning. Don't skip over stuff. Don't play leapfrog over that other stuff. But you want gospel ministry is not interested in just you being happy little you becoming like Jesus. The gospel is this thing that you cannot contain. It has to go everywhere, and it has to avalanche into it. It has to domino a bunch of lives. And so be thinking, be praying, be intentional to think, God, these people that are in my small group, these people that I, I want to care for, the, the ministry that I want to have among other people, may it be a, such a gospel interaction that they would become examples to others also. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Wow. <coughs> Guys, this has to be on our minds. I think one of the reasons that gospel ministry is oftentimes just small and humble is because that's the way God has it be. Okay? He's not after the big flash. Have you seen have you have you seen this this guy in Texas who told his congregation that they need to have sex seven days in a row? His church is 20,000 people. Oh, wow. And he preached a message that the church oftentimes doesn't talk about something that God does talk about, sex. So he encouraged his congregation, husbands and wives, to have sex seven days in a row and just watch what God would do. And, you know, that's just massive. I mean, a church of 20,000, and you... Get that kind of message, your church next week is going to be 25,000. <laughs> I mean, it is. 
But why is it that, that when he... And I, I may have just brought up something that completely derailed everything that we're talking about. But it all depends on you and how much self-control you have. So no pressure. But read it in, guys. Did you have an address for that? That is hilarious. Yeah, I'd love to share a story. I had the pleasure. Is this G rated? Yeah, it's G rated. Five years ago, I got to participate in doing the eulogy of a very, very close friend of mine that died. And he, in his life, was both very instrumental in my life, in my life and sanctification process. And as I was participating in the eulogy. Uh, there was probably about five, four to five hundred people at this funeral. I asked if this man's life has impacted you in a discipleship way. Would you stand up? And I would say somewhere between seventy-five to one hundred twenty-five people stood up, and they started to sit down. I said, "No, keep standing." And I said, "If you're sitting here today, and the people that are standing's life has impacted you, you stand up." And it was just huge. I mean, and it was just uh, kind of ex exactly what the example is. A great example of a living example today of what the gospel is supposed to do. It's an avalanche of imitation. But listen, we're not out to grow and make big stuff and to make the church big. And oftentimes gospel ministry is just small and it's humble because that's the way God does it. And it's not the same as marketing. And when a church adopts marketing stuff, we'll talk about this in, in, at the end, um, it just skews everything. It makes everything hard to measure what's really happening and what's not. But listen, oftentimes too, ministry, gospel ministry is small because you and I think small. We just think about ourselves. God, make me into the kind of man that I should be. And God, I'm not asking you to skip over that and stop thinking about that. That's not what's happening here. But you have to understand what the gospel does in gospel ministry. It makes you into an example and others imitate it. Okay, so God, push me outside the bounds of what I'm thinking that, okay, I need to be, number one, just imitatable. But secondly, now make them, the ones that I minister, turn them into an example and may it be so effective that it goes everywhere and puts me out of a job. That is thinking big. Now, if that ends up and you pray that kind of way and you focus on that intentionally and God makes your ministry just a small little humble thing, praise God. <coughs> but if God causes some type of a chain reaction to take place, it's going to be through somebody who understands how the gospel works. And you and I need to be men who understand how the gospel works. Look, how, look at how effective they became in verse 8. Paul gives explanation for, typical Paul, uh, every other sentence is for, for, for. Those are, by the way, um, before the, the year is out here, we're gonna, we're gonna, we'll start doing some um, how to study the Bible type things. And we'll, do a, we'll just do some baby steps in diagramming. <laughs> right, Sinead? Yeah. Yeah, says Joe. Um, <laughs> when you diagram this stuff, if you... If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. It's not a, 
right? It's so important right now. But if you start with Paul over here on this side of your page, you remember when you were in ninth grade and you had to do line diagram, those of you guys who are older, who are over 28? Um, by the time you're done diagramming Paul, you've moved, you need four more pieces of paper and you've got construction paper out this butcher block size and you're way over here. That's because he says a statement, he says four, and four, and four, and this is what he's doing here. He's giving more explanation. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in these two districts, Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God. So the word of the Lord that contained the gospel sounded forth, and your faith, your trust in God, your entrustment of your life to God has gone forth everywhere. Look at that. That's effective. The idea of the word sounded forth there is like the intense blast of a trumpet. It's like a, the very distinct um, blast of a trumpet that would signal an army that it's time to go to war, time to fight, get up, whatever it is you're doing, stop that and get to battle. That's what's the idea here. Um, they were that effective. They were an intense blast of a gospel trumpet. A very distinct gospel sounding went forth from them. Um, and your faith went forth everywhere. And Paul says, his how, this is how effective the gospel was in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Um, we don't need to say anything. The Apostle Paul doesn't need to say anything. I mean, you can just read over that and miss that. I mean, just stop and think on that. The Apostle Paul, one of the, the, the primary author of the New Testament, <laughs> well, God's the author of the New Testament. After the Gospels, Paul is just this massive contributor to what God is wanting to reveal, and he doesn't need to say anything. That's amazing. Because God's word blasted forth from their lives, and it spoke for itself from them. And their lives were so thoroughly transformed in their faith that it said everything that was needed. And so rather than Paul having to go out and tell others, hey, let me tell you about what happened in Thessalonica. Let me, let me give you, and like, oh, wait, you don't need to tell us. We've already heard. And Paul doesn't need to say a word. Now, wouldn't that, think on this, guys. When was the last time you thought, as you were thinking about the kind of ministry you want to have, that you would actually pray, God, be so effective and powerful in the lives of these that I work in that I that I, I, I get worked out of a job. Now that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying I don't preach the gospel anymore. But Paul would then have to say, I, I guess I need to go someplace else to speak because it's already being said here. Can you imagine? God, we need to pray to this end for Grace Bible Church, for your own life, that the sounding forth would go forth from those that we minister to so effectively that we would have to go, gosh, we got to find another place to go with the gospel because it's heard everywhere here. This is what I mean, that we, we, we're just content with small things. And we can't be content with small things when it comes to the gospel because the gospel is not about anything small. It's a domino effect. It's an avalanche. It's a chain reaction that takes place. And you guys need to be praying for your part in all of this. All right, so think. It's not enough to just say, if you're understanding gospel ministry, it's not enough to just say, God, make me into a man who could be an example to others. Pray that. That's not enough to pray that. It's not enough to pray, and God, make the people who 
I minister to, turn them into examples. Pray for that, but that's not enough to be praying for. And make them into such effective examples that what happens in their lives as the word of the Lord goes forth from them, that it silences me and makes me have to turn into another direction. That's the way we need to be praying. Yes? Can we um, just do my form of prayer to Jim Lance? Oh, great. Uh, I mean, it seems like we know the man is capable of these things anyway, but if we could minister to him by praying before his ministry, it would be a nice problem in five years that that would figure out what he's doing there. Yeah, wouldn't that be amazing? And that would be just like God to be able to do something like that. So with that in mind, we're going to pray for Jim Lance right now. Let's do that. Let's pray for him. Lord, thanks for um, even just putting that on Russ's heart to be able to pray for Jim. And um, as Jim is learning a language and working through all the hurdles of that and the challenges of that, pray, Lord, that he wouldn't forget this. I pray that you might um, put First Thessalonians 1 on his mind and on his heart and that he would meditate on this and that he would seek to... Um, his heart's desire would be that you would do in him and through him and through those that he will reach the same thing that you did in and through Paul and the Thessalonians. And that the gospel would have a chain reaction from the plateau where he is in China. That the word of the Lord would sound forth in such a distinct and uncommon way and that the faith in Christ that those will have, Lord willing, would make Jim have to turn another direction. Oh, Father, that would be, uh, that would glorify you. That would make you look great. Your weightiness and your impressiveness would be seen all over the world, especially a world that is stuck on a bumper statement that has been around for decades and hasn't done anything save today. God, you save today with the gospel work powerfully. And may Jim be um, may he be just a simple, godly, <clears throat> gospel true man. And work in him. Encourage him today, Lord, as he is far away. As he may struggle with um, differences and cultural oddities and weather and whatever, God. Just work in him. And comfort him with yourself. We love you. We love him. And we pray that our church would support him well um, and that you would glorify yourself above all things in the way that you want. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Russ. Appreciate that. All right. Pray that God would uh, raise up others who will speak more broadly than us. That's what we want. That's what happened to Paul. Lastly, number five. <clears throat> Ministry, receptivity, labors for repentance. Let's say, what on earth does that mean? Well, there's a report that is going out in verse nine. They themselves. Now, when he says they themselves, who's he talking about? That's right. Those in Macedonia and Achaia and those who were, their faith has gone forth everywhere. They themselves, those people have a report that they have to, to communicate, a report they want to make. And what is the report about? 
Here's the report, Paul. Here's what our findings are. What, what, are, what are their findings? Look at verse 9. What's it about? It's about Paul. It's about Paul. And the reception that they had. They're, see, this is where I say that the emphasis in this section is on the interaction. Because the report that's coming out is not, well, here's the findings we have on the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ crucified um, and forgiveness of sin, uh, faith and repentance. It's, it's not the message of the gospel. That's the report. Now, it's, it's important. It's not separated from that. But the report is, it is the kind of interaction, Paul, that you guys had with them, that's gone everywhere. That's an amazing thing that God has inscripturated for us to see. Macedonians and Achaeans, those everywhere, they, they emphasize the kind of report, the kind of re- reception that they had among you. The idea of the word um, reception in verse 9, I don't know what it is in yours. Uh, the idea is, is welcoming, the kind of welcomableness, so to speak, that they had. That's the report that went out. Paul's trying here to show how important, again, the messenger is, the kind of interaction you want to have. That's what I mean by ministry receptivity. How receptive, how, re- how well received they were when they got there. Paul's manner was such a, a thing, the kind of man he was, worked out a kind of reception that they got. His behavior among them, it, it was not an obstacle to the gospel. His behavior, the kind of man he was with them, was actually a a platform for the gospel. Do you get it? That's why you've got to be the kind of man that the gospel is shaping you into. Because that's what God loves to use as a launching pad for the gospel to go forward into lives. You can't be concerned just about the content and then just be a schmo. Whatever that is. I don't even know what it is. But you don't want to be it. You've got to be a certain kind of life. It's probably some Hebrew word. You know, is it a Hebrew? I don't know. Doesn't matter. Okay. Now notice this. Watch this. Verse nine. Here's the report concerning us. It's about the kind of reception we had among you, and it's about something else. What? Repentance. Yeah, repentance. How you turned to God from idols to do two things. Why did God turn you from idols to the true God, the living God? He did that so that you would serve him. And, verse 10 always gets ignored, so that you would wait for his son from heaven. What does it mean to be a Christian? Here's a great definition for you. It is to serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus. We need to import this idea of waiting for Jesus more into our minds, in our hearts, in our days. What am I doing today? I'm I'm waiting for Jesus. I I wait for his arrival to come from heaven. That's what I'm waiting for. He's been raised from the dead, and we've been delivered. He's the one who delivered us from the wrath that is to come. That wrath is coming when he comes. And when he comes, I want to be waiting for him. So the report is we had this amazing reception with you and that reception was marked by their repentance. It it was a part of their repentance. It contributed to their repentance. It was a platform to their repentance. And so this is what we mean when we say 
ministry receptivity or gospel receptivity, it labors for one thing and one thing only. It labors for repentance. It's not satisfied. Being welcomed, being a welcomable guy, being a well-received guy, being a likable guy means nothing unless those that you're ministering to repent. Ministry receptivity labors for repentance. It's not satisfied until it gets there. So, let's ask ourselves the question, what do you want the report to be of your ministry to others? When the report comes back to others, or comes to others about you and your ministry, what do you want it to say? You want it to say this. You want the report to be about Reception, a kind of reception you had with the people, the kind of welcomableness that was there. It's a very technical word, welcomableness. Um, you want it to, though, be about repentance, being granted by God. Um, think about it. You know what the Macedonians and the Achaeans and those everywhere, you know what they, 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 they couldn't think of Paul being welcomed by the Thessalonians without also thinking about how the Thessalonians repented. When they thought about one, they thought about the other. Ministry receptivity, it labors for repentance. Guys, desire to be a welcomable guy. Somebody that people would welcome into their lives. Be winsome. <laughs> Be likable with a gospel likableness. But what are you pushing for? What are you praying for in that welcomableness? Repentance. It's always in your mind. Repentance. That God would use your receptiveness, that you're being received by them to bring about repentance in others. And you know what, guys? And you'll have to you'll have to wrestle with this, especially if you have any kind of leadership role among others, whether it's a small group leader or you're just discipling another guy. You watch your heart, because your heart will be very satisfied to just be liked by them. Period. Period. It'll feel good. You, you will deceive yourself into saying, you know what, something really significant is happening here. You know how I know? They like me. There seems to be a lot of good favor coming from all this. But you can no longer be satisfied with that based on what you see here. There has to be, look, be likable. But you, you will always have a sense of something's incomplete until there's changed lives. Repentance. Contextually here, this is, I think the repentance is tied to conversion. And, and most often the word repentance in the New Testament is tied to conversion. But it's also true that we have a lifestyle of repentance too, right? Um, we do. And, and so, I mean, it would not just, 
um, wouldn't be disassociated from that, that there would be continual life transformation. But narrowly here, the first thought is that we would love to see people get saved. Um, but the people that we minister to, if we're ministering to other believers, we would love to see them have a, a strong life of repentance in their faith as well. Um, now, let's talk about this practically for a second. Um, what do you see out there on the evangelical landscape around us today? These days, you see churches and you see ministries pushing really hard to be liked. They want to be popular. They want to be. I. They want the the, the lost around them to I, to have find easily some point of identification. Ah, I can I can identify with this group of people. What's going on there? I like them. I like that church. I what I see in them. That's. I want to welcome that into my lost life. Right. I mean, you see that a lot. Unfortunately, I think what you see is that kind of thing empty of a desire for repentance in them, though. Do you understand? And that, this, is, this is the church growth movement from years past. Um, this is, uh, in all honesty, it's the emergent movement. In these days, same thing, just with a different dress on. Um, this is what's going on. Churches trying to figure out what they can do to be liked by the community. And they come in and they look at that and they go, man, I could welcome this into my life. But do I have to repent? Do I have to repent at all? That's up in the air. Bill Hybels. You're absolutely right. Um, And here's the, here's the, that's a crazy maker right there. Here's the the double strength crazy maker is they're not doing anything about it. He is actually now speaking. He's one of the headline speakers for the emergent movement. Mm -hmm. And the way he came to the decision was put his finger to the wind of popular opinion and say, is this working? Rather than is it biblical? Yeah. He's still, he's still, uh, he happened to blow in the right direction. But not because scripture led him to, but because Christians were going. I need it's more amazing. It's amazing that his people know what's wrong, but he doesn't. Yeah, very Heartbreaking. Yeah. So listen, the, here here would be an, a reaction to this that we shouldn't have. Well, pe- people just want to be liked, you know, and it's about repentance because being liked without repentance that's weak. So we're just going to be about repentance, and we're going to be jerks. <laughs> you know, who cares if you like me or not? I don't care if you like me or not. No, I do care if you like me or not. Scott, I looked up Schmo. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Yiddish for jerk. Wow. 
accept that I am so glad you were part of this church. <laughs> because nobody else would have thought to do that except you. On your iPhone, of all things. So. <laughs> you, are you a part of that? Yeah, I'm part of that group. <laughs> Look, we don't want to be schmoes <laughs> concerned only for repentance. That's not what Paul's message is here. You want to be received. You want to be. But that is a servant to repentance. Um, and if they don't repent, we want to leave or move and look in a different direction or continue to labor, if that's what we feel God is calling us to do, in a way that makes our lives receivable in the lives of others. So the, the, the point is, these two things cannot be separated. We want to be, recept- we want to be received by the lost community but only insofar that they would repent with the gospel that we bring. So we want to be the kind of man that proved to be easily received into a lie for the sake of repentance. And that right there, I think, is probably one of the best ways that you could... Look, most of you, Lord willing, will, will it'd be great if all of you would be here for the rest of your days in this church. But most likely, God will move you to different places. And... You, this is a great way to evaluate churches. And this is a great way for you to evaluate this church in an ongoing way. Is there a desire to be a certain kind of church, to be a certain way in the gospel where we care about people? We want to be received into their lives. But there's repentance that we're looking for. And what is the, what is the key thing here? Take that key thing away and what makes all this become perverted? Take out of that the gospel. Just shift it a little bit and say, oh, our church came to you, or our program came to you. And you start getting this thing all skewed. Um, <coughs> let me give you a similar idea to this. Go to um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse... 24. I think Paul is saying something similar here um, to what he's saying in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, The Lord's servant, we're afraid to translate that slave because that's what it is, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome because you wouldn't be received very well if you were a quarrelsome jerk or schmo. But be kind to everyone. The Lord's slave must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. It means you're going to correct your opponents with gentleness, though. Why? So that God may perhaps grant them repentance, which leads to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I mean, that's what you have to keep in your mind. All of the people around us, they've been captured by the devil, held captive by him to do his will. Please, like me. Because the gospel I have can grant you repentance. I don't want to be just liked by somebody who's held captive for the sake of being liked. We've lost sight of how dangerous their situation is if we just want to be liked by them. (coughs) Another passage that has this principle. Go to Romans chapter 2. 
We looked at horizontal examples of this, how one bond servant wants to be this way in the lives of others. But now let's look at the vertical where all of this comes from. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge. You, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Wow, we like that in other people. And this is God. He's kind. He has lots of forbearance and patience. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Why is Paul the way he is? Why is he receivable? Because his God is. Our God is. And his ministry that we go out and do in the gospel has the same quality. Ministry receptivity. It labors for repentance because God labors for repentance. And he does it from his kindness and his forbearance, his patience. And so we need to be the same kind of men. And the only way that you and I become those kind of men is because of the gospel in us. Because we preach the gospel to ourselves. We shepherd our hearts. We don't play leapfrog over our hearts. Um, so all this is based on sound theology. So, there's the ministry, the example of Paul. What we're going to do um, the next time we're together, I think it's December 13th. Can you believe that? December 13th. Wow. We will be um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, verses 1, I forget, to 1, 8 maybe? No, 12, I forget. But that's what will be next. We'll get a double dose of the ministry. All right. Any questions or comments? Can you practically when you are evaluating your own ministry and effectiveness, the best thing, like the best measuring stick would be looking at the effect of the gospel in regards to your sphere of influence, uh, particularly in light of like, the standards of like last year. Like that's, that's a measuring stick that we're, we're going to be we want to be using as opposed to um, receptivity. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to think of receptivity without that. Because, okay. you know, here's what I find. I, this is my own heart and how I have to shepherd my heart. I can be very excited that a um, matter of months ago, on a good Sunday, there was 135 people. And on a good Sunday, now there's 200 people. And I can be really excited about that and think and conclude something must be going wrong. <coughs> what is this calling us to make sure that we think about? That we labor with those who might be seeing something and saying, you know what, I, I, I like this group of people. I like what's happening here. It makes us labor to make sure that the gospel is in the forefront of everything so that repentance can come for the first time or so that repentance is promoted in an ongoing way in the Christian life. Um, and we have to live for that and be satisfied with nothing less.
And we need to remind each other that and not let us forget it. So, any other statements? Oh, yeah, and uh, I mean, I just want to talk about uh, my experience. You know, I, I, I was coming from a church that brought a lot of people to Christ on, uh, on a given Sunday. We could have 20 people who raised their hand that they wanted to be converted, but we failed a lot in the continuing repentance. So, we, we didn't grow as much. I mean, you could say, say that, think that. You know, every month we could bring so many people, but they would stay the same because there was no growth in the people that came or that stayed. So it's, I mean, it's very important for right. both to be there. And, and the way that you get that kind of a, a ministry <coughs> where people will say, yeah, I want to be saved, but I'm not sure I want to live a Christian life, is you give to them a gospel that says this only is fire insurance. <coughs> But it's not something that's going to transform your living. It just saves you from hell. So please, does anybody want to be saved from hell? Who's going to say no? Now that's part of the message. It's not all of the message. And so this is why you have to have a very big gospel that saves rebels from hell and turns them into children of God in a progressive way over life. Keep that kind of message in front, and people who want to hear, who want to hear, I just don't want to go to hell, but I'm not sure I want to change, they might be drawn to that part that they hear, but over time, as they hear a consistent message of a big gospel, transformed life, lordship of Jesus Christ, grace that transforms, beyond grace that saves, as they keep hearing that, they'll start going, if they don't, if, if they still, all they want to hear is just, no, 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 I just want to be saved from hell, they won't want to be a part of that. Or maybe God will use it to bring a crumbling, humbling effect to their heart, and they'll get the gospel. So, yeah, we have to help each other with that. All right, any other thoughts before we break up into small groups for a little bit? All right. Um, by the way, in, in regards to your homework, um, if you want to, I think, Tom, I saw you, were you handing stuff back out? Yeah. If you want, you're more than welcome to hand it in to either Smed or me or Tom. Um, and those of you guys that I've had before I have you go, the last, you know, we don't have assigned small groups, we kind of just take whomever. I have some of your homework here. You're more than welcome to turn that in. I would, in fact, I, I'd love to see what you're thinking. And, and um, I was so blessed by reading through the last two uh, homeworks that you guys do and hand it in to me anyway. Um, so if you have any past ones that you want to turn in to me, give them to me today. Even if you're not in my small group or if you're in Smith or Tom, turn into them or whatever, and we'll take a look at it and give you some feedback, okay?